Well, y'all ready for today's message? Hey, listen, uh, my wife always gets nervous when I start out with jokes. So let's start out with a joke. Uh, so uh, this grandmother had been teaching her little seven-year-old granddaughter the Bible and walking through her with the Bible, and her daughter was getting pretty where she knew the Bible pretty well. Well, one day the seven-year-old asked her grandmother a question that kind of throws her out of the, uh, throws her for a loop. She said, Grandma, she said, can you tell me what virgin in the Bible was Jesus' mom? The grandmother's like, um, well, what do you mean? She said, well, was it uh, Mary the virgin or King James virgin? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's my dad joke. That was Denise approved. So, and that's why I don't run any of my jokes about Denise, because I'm sure most of them she'll say, no, don't tell that joke. Hey, anybody heard of the song, and I'm going to butcher this title, but, uh, Adeste Fidelis? Some of you know it, but what is it known by the American name? Oh, come all you faithful. That's the American name for this song. Caitlin sang it this morning. The true origin of the song is really unknown. Uh, it's been attributed to different authors throughout history. John Reading, St. Bonaventure, uh, King John V of Portugal, an anonymous group of monks. But the earliest printed version of this song is given credit to John Francis Wade as being the author. Uh, the version that was published by Wade had four Latin verses. Uh, later in the 18th century, French Catholic priests Jean-Francois Etienne Boisier. Um, that's pretty good, I thought. Uh, penned an additional three Latin verses to the song. This Christmas hymn, uh, it is the final song sung during Midnight Mass at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. It is the opening call to worship for many other churches. This song has been done by hundreds, if not thousands, of artists covered by them. I mean, we're talking about uh, guys like Nat King Cole, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Uh, get this one. R the, the rapper Common did it. Uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir, Carrie Underwood. And I could go on and on and on. The story behind it said it is believed that this song, this hymn, was written referencing the shepherds in the field. When the angel came and announced the birth of Christ to the angels. And so I want to look at that account of that happening. Found in Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. Yeah, you think? Come on, anybody else? You're sitting out there in the field, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up? I'd be like, somebody's get found the mushrooms out here in the field. Uh, go on. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring you great joy to all people. The Savior, here's, hone in on this. This is what the angel tells them. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. 
And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Luke's telling of this story opens with angels announcing to a bunch of shepherds the birth of the Son of God. The birth of the Son of God. If you're, if you're back in this time when, when Luke writes this or you're hearing it back then, you're thinking this is fake news. This is not real. There's no way God would choose to deliver this kind of message to a bunch of shepherds. They're just not who God, God, if God, why didn't God call the mayor of Bethlehem? Hey, hey, you might want to get down here, the son of God's been born. Why didn't he contact the religious leaders or the, uh, some esteemed rabbi? Why a bunch of shepherds? You see, shepherds were not admired during biblical times. In Genesis 46, 34, they call shepherds loathsome or detestable. In fact, there's a point in the Old Testament where being a shepherd was considered a punishment. You look at Numbers 14, 33. Here's what it says. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. Most shepherds had a side job. You know what it was? Stealing. Some of y'all didn't realize you were shepherds at one time. Let it sink in. Their job paid so little that they would have to do whatever it took to be able to support and care for their family. They were considered the lowlifes of society. They were looked down upon the religious. Why? Because of, of the work they did. Handling sheep, handling dead carcasses. They weren't able to perform all the necessary rituals to, to observe any of the holy days or go in the synagogue. So they were considered also unclean. Here's what uh, the Mishnah, uh, Judaism's written record of the oral law, this is what it says about shepherds, how it describes them. They are incompetent. No one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. That's why they felt about shepherds. So if you're going to announce the arrival of the Son of God, the Messiah, why don't you go somewhere and announce it to someone with some influence? Someone that can help you spread this word. Now, it doesn't give us the names of the shepherd. But we all know the names of the shepherd. If you've been a part of any kind of children's play, their names are Shepherd 1, Shepherd 2, and Shepherd 3. That's their names. But when you know about the shepherds and you hear that this hymn, Oh, Come All You Faithful, was written about them, you're like, Oh, Come All You Faithful? I can understand if you were saying, Oh, Come All You Thieves. Oh, Come All You unclean but the song says oh come all you faithful yet this is who God chooses to be the first recipients of this news it's easy to read this story listen and say God just needs a better PR guy nobody's even going to know how he's delivering the message nobody's even going to know that the king has arrived but can we say when you look through the Bible 
This is God's pattern. How many know God doesn't always make sense? At least to us. And, and when you look at this story, the, the Christmas story, it's insane. Uh, think about it. An unwed teenage girl carrying God. Come on. That's crazy. Uh, the shepherd that were considered unclean. That's who he chooses to announce it to. Uh, even the neighborhood he was born into wasn't one of royalty. And then when you look at what we, the magi, we like to call them the three wise men because that's more palatable to us to think God would show up to wise men, not magis who were known to study the stars. Why would God show up to them? Why would God say, hey, you need to go see this baby? They, did, they were pagans. They didn't even believe in the Jewish God. Yet here God says, hey. And then when they show up, you know, our, our nativity scene has Mary, Joseph, the baby, shepherds, some animals, and then the three magi. But if you study, you know the magi didn't get there until he was like two years old, which is even more of a miracle that magi came and worshipped a toddler. Have you ever been around a toddler? The last thing you want to do is worship a toddler. You might want to beat that toddler, but you don't want to worship it. But yet, this is, these are the people God chose. And Matthew 1 is an interesting uh, gospel. It's one of the four gospels. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. God, and here's why it's interesting. Mark and John... They both open up talking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, then go right into the life of Jesus. You've got Luke. He opens up with the birth of John the Baptist, talks about it a little bit, and then in the same chapter, we see the angel appearing to Mary, letting her know, hey, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. All those three Gospels, man, they start out with a story that draws you in. And that's just good story writing. I mean, an author knows, catch them. That first chapter has got to be enough to draw them in to make them want to keep reading. Any artist that records an album, they'll know, I want to put one of my best songs first on the album so when they hear it, start to listen, they'll want to lean in and listen more. And so these, you got Mark, John, Luke, all do that. Matthew, though, he decides to start his book a little different. Here's how Matthew opens up his book, Matthew 1, 1 and 2. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you might know it like this. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Anybody reading that, you're like, what the heck is begetting me? And then when you're older, you're like, oh, that means they were begetting it on. And uh, so you were... That's, that's one of my favorites. Anyway, let's go on. But then it continues with his family tree. The opening of Matthew could be, let's be honest. Okay, how many of you, you've done the Bible reading through a year? Anybody ever done Now, you've got to be honest, Harvey Brown. Listen, how many have ever been reading through the Bible? You get to Matthew 1, the begets. How many have actually skipped over that chapter? Yeah, 
Yeah. It can easily be said in some of the most boring verses in the Bible. I'm, can we be honest? I mean, it, it could be easy. But here's my question. Why would Matthew start out his account of Jesus' life with his genealogy? Because Matthew knew this. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And he's getting ready to make a case that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And him being a Jew himself knew this. The first question that would be asked is this. If he's the son of God, make the connection between him and King David. Because if he's not in King David's bloodline, he's not the son of God. And so Matthew's like, well, let's get this right out of the way at the top. I'm going to show you how he is, that he is connected uh, with, with David, that he is the Messiah. Uh, but then Matthew does some really strange things. Um, any, anybody ha ever have somebody find out your last name and then they say, oh, that's your, are you related to so-and-so? And then you're like, uh, it depends. <laughs> because you, you know that person. And if it was up to you, you would not be related to them. We all have that family member. We show up to family reunion, and you look up and see them coming your way, and you're like, oh, no. And if you don't know who that family member is, it's you. It's you. <laughs> you just need to know. I'm just trying to help you out. Here to be a blessing today. Um, but here's the thing. One of the things Matthew does is, see, genealogies, especially then, were male-dominated. They, they, they thought their thing was, there's no point in mentioning the women. Who's the father? Who's the father? Show me who the father is and how he's related to King David. Let's make the match and then move on. But Matthew decides to throw a wrench in it. He decides to include a handful of women in this genealogy. And not just any women. Women that, if you were writing the story, the history of Jesus' bloodline, you probably would be tempted to leave these women out. There was, you wouldn't want them. And, and here you, you'd be like, hey, yeah, we're related, but, you know, we're distant cousins. And these women here, though, see, in these times, when, when, the, when a person wanted to write a history about themselves or their own story, they would hire writers to tell their story, tell their history. But they, the writers knew this. Those people only wanted you to write about the good stuff. Write about the good things. We don't, they don't need to know all this, what I did at spring break. Let's write about the good stuff. They don't need to know about my time down at Mexico County Jail. Let's write about the good stuff. And that's what they would do. Casey goes, well. So, But that's what they do. And they would, hey, write about the, the battles I won, the conquerors, the victories I won. If they had a son, they would say, put them in the ones, that, the one that, man, put about how great of a warrior he grew up to be. Then if they had a dumb son or the son that was a slow, well, no need to mention him. Why? Because they wanted to put the best things in their story. But Matthew, I. It's hard to understand, what are you doing here? You're ignoring all the rules for writing someone's history. In fact, it's almost like he wants us to question 
some of the people that are that are show up in Jesus' bloodline. I mean, if he's going to mention them, let's do it briefly and then move on. Because if Matthew is just trying to make the statement, yes, he's the son of God, here's how he's connected to King David, just give us a list of fathers. But Matthew lists four women in this genealogy. Three of these women aren't even Jewish. Not even Jewish. It's like Matthew's trying to make a point to let us know Jesus is not even a pure-blood Jew. He's a half-breed. Something you would not include in your genealogy if you're trying to make the statement he's the son of God. Two of the women that he mentions, they shouldn't have been brought up at all. I mean, it, it, to most people listening, it's just embarrassing. But he doesn't even wait. He jumps right into listing the women. Look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was who? Who? Tamar, Tamar. Depends on where you're from. We got a guy from Louisiana. It's Tamar. Like, hey, can you call me Tamar? Uh, Who is Tamar? If you don't know who Tamar is, let me give you the clean version of who this woman is. If you want to read about her life, Genesis 38, you can read about it. But here's the clean version of this woman. She dressed it up like a prostitute, stood outside the temple to seduce her father-in-law to sleep with her to get her pregnant. That's the clean version. Read it. It gets even worse when you read the full story. So why even bring her up? No, no need to mention her. That's the first woman. Let's move on. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Ray, she wasn't even a Jew. And she had a very cool nickname. Anybody know it? Rahab the harlot. Anybody want that nickname? That was her nickname. That's what they called her. Ra that's in the Bible. Rahab the harlot. Why mention her and put her in Jesus' bloodline? Why even bring her up? There's no need for that, Matthew. And it goes on. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. PK, that's a good story, though. It is. In fact, they wrote a whole book ab uh, about her. Anybody know what the name of the book is? Ruth. Um, <laughs> just stand if you were with me. Barb, did you get that? Okay. Ruth wasn't Jewish. She was a Moabite. She wasn't even Jewish. So if Matthew's trying to convince these Jewish people that Jesus is the Son of God, how about we just leave these people out? No need to mention them. It doesn't mess up the story. We just leave out some details. So you got Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Finally, Matthew, we made it. Let's stop there. We're, we're done. No need to go on any more detours. But Matthew's not done. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Isn't that an interesting way to tell who she is? The father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's 
wife. What's her name, Matthew? Matthew's like, I don't need to mention her name because everybody reading the story knows what her name is. Her name is Bathsheba. There's no need to say her name because we all know who she is and, and the story. And here's my question. Matthew, why are you bringing up one of the most ugliest parts of David's history? Because we just want to think about David, the, the giant killer, the conquering warrior, the fighter, the king. Man, the Israel's one of the, their greatest kings. Yet, Matthew wants to point out the ugly and broken parts of King David's life. I believe if you were to ask David, hey, David, what is your biggest regret in your year, in your life? I think this is one of the days he'd point to. That day. The affair that he had with one of his most loyal general's wives. While his general was out fighting, his soldier was out fighting, David has an affair with his wife. She ends up getting pregnant. And then David goes out of his way to make sure then that her husband is killed to cover up his sin. So I think David would point back and say, that's one of my biggest regrets. And honestly, who would want that in the history books? Nobody. I think David would have erased that from the history books if possible. And Matthew, writing the genealogy of Jesus, feels the need to include and remind people about the worst moment in King David's life. See, here's the thing. If Matthew just wanted to include women, there were other women he could have included that didn't have a shady past. I mean, he could have, uh, women like Sarah, Rebecca. These women didn't have wouldn't have caused anybody to raise any eyes. Instead, he feels the need to point out Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the mother of Solomon who had been Uriah's wife. Why? Why? Here's what I think. Matthew had spent three years at Jesus' side. He saw Jesus heal people, perform miracles. He heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus then beaten, brutalized, hung on a cross, Matthew stood outside an empty tomb. And Matthew knew that all these questionable characters that were in this genealogy, the shepherds, the magi, people with all their sin and all their baggage, he knew this. The unfaithful were the point of the story he was telling. They were the point. They were why Jesus came. These people with all their baggage, all their junk, all their sin, they were the whole point of the story of Jesus. But PK, why make a big deal about where Jesus came from and his bloodline? Because Matthew knew this, that it would be vital for those listening and for us today to know this. Jesus didn't just come for sinners. Jesus came from sinners. He didn't just come for him. He came from them. See, this story of Jesus is a story of light stepping into darkness. The story of Jesus and the birth is a story of life stepping into death. 
The story that Matthew is telling is one of grace tearing down the walls that the law and the religious had built to separate God from man. This was the story of forgiveness in a world that had only known condemnation. Why and how did Matthew know this? Because Matthew was well aware of his own story. Where he came from. Matthew knew where and who he was when Jesus found him. He was one of the people that had a less than desirable past. He, he understood exactly where these people were coming from. He understood that people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the Bathsheba, these were his people. These were people he would have hung out with. These were the broken ones. He's writing this genealogy, and I can't help but think that Matthew started remembering the day that he met Jesus. It was in Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples get off this boat there in Capernaum, and the word, word had been spreading about Jesus, so there was this huge crowd awaiting Jesus. And all these miracles about, about to be performed. And Matthew 9 opens telling the story of this paralyzed man being brought to Jesus. Jesus ends up healing this man. Only moments after the healing takes place, Matthew finds himself face-to-face -face with Jesus for the first time. Here's his telling of that encounter, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Have you ever played that game where, hey, what's, your, what's the most embarrassing moment of your life? What's the most embarrassing thing that happened to you? I think this was Matthew's go-to story. You want to know the most embarrassing moment in my life? Well, it was the day I was at work. Jesus gets off this boat there in Capernaum. Huge crowds were there to meet him. This guy that we know has been paralyzed, he gets healed, man. People are going crazy. And the next thing I know, I am eyeball to eyeball with the Son of God. And you know what I'm doing? I'm collecting taxes. And here's why this would have been an embarrassing story. Matthew's first encounter with Jesus because if you were Jewish and a tax collector you were low life you were a traitor to your own people because anybody what they would do tax collectors Jewish tax collectors they would buy the right from the Roman government to be able to tax their own people and that's one thing but what they would do is with that tax they would pad their pockets by adding extra and they were literally robbing from their own people so they were considered traitors and lowlifes and the Jewish people hated tax collectors Any Jewish man that would buy the right to collect taxes from their own people was considered worthless. In fact, you weren't even good enough to be considered a sinner. If you read the Bible, it separates sinners from tax collectors. It says the tax collectors and sinners. I mean, they were so, on, uh, they were so low on the totem pole, sinners was above them. And that's pretty low. What's Matthew saying? What's he trying to tell us? He said, you want to know who I am? You want to know who's writing this story? I was an embarrassment to my own family. 
I was an embarrassment to my own people. I was banned from every synagogue. I couldn't participate in any of the religious festivals because I was unclean. You want to know who I am? That's who I am. He was an unfaithful, a low life. You know who his only friends were? Other tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus walks up to Matthew and sees Matthew in the middle of his mess, in the middle of collecting taxes from his fellow Jews. I wonder what Matthew had to be thinking when he saw Jesus approaching him. And because Jesus wasn't alone, he had some other younger Jewish men that hated tax collectors too. And you know, Peter had to be eyeing him. Oh, oh. I want Jesus is with us, so let's watch our language. Jesus is with us, so let's don't spit on him. And they see Jesus walking up to Matthew. And they're like, Oh, we don't have to say anything. Jesus is about to tear this guy a new one. It is on. That's southern. They were from southern Jerusalem. Anyway. <laughs> and they're like, give it to him, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Matthew and says this. Follow me. I, I think Peter and the others would be thinking, are you, are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you, are you serious right now? You're asking this guy who's a traitor to his own people to follow you, to come with us? Yeah, I know, Jesus, we were sinners when you found us, but we weren't that bad. Come on, don't we still do that? We see God moving. Yeah, God, I know I was a sinner, but I never was that bad. I never was that far gone. know Matthew knew what they thought about him but what I love about Matthew is in this moment Matthew didn't care what they thought about him he didn't care if he that he didn't fit in with him he didn't care if they thought he should be there or not all he knew was this Jesus the Messiah looked at him in the middle of his mess and said follow me Jesus then goes step farther or step further and uh, makes it even more uncomfortable for the disciples. Hey, Matthew, I'll tell you what. Why don't we go to your house and eat? Invite some of your friends while you're at it. I, I think they were like, are, are, you, are you kidding me? I mean, we're, we're having it rough in the ministry right now as it is. And now the religious, they don't like us anyway. And they find out and see that we're eating with a bunch of sinners in a sinner's home. Our ministry is going to go downhill from here. We're going to start doing fundraiser with Krispy Kreme and sell and try to get money to get us going. If you've been around the church a while, you've been a part of one of those. But Matthew begins to recount this dinner with Jesus. And he actually says this, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus and his disciples are in the house with the sinners tax collectors guess where the religious leaders are they're outside they're not about to cross over this threshold why would they do that for a sinner why would they do that for someone less than them so they motioned to one of Jesus' disciples to come over verse 11 when the Pharisees saw this they asked his disciples 
Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're like, we don't understand your rabbi. He's complicated. One moment he's talking about God's righteousness and he seems to uphold the law. The next minute he's eating in a very place he shouldn't be. He's eating, and with people he shouldn't be eating with. And Jesus overhears the conversation. And, and Matthew's writing all this down, remembering this encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me. Matthew follows him, verse 12. On hearing this, what the Pharisees were saying, Jesus said, it is not health, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. It's not the healthy, it's the sick. Now, it would have been very easy for Matthew and his friends to get offended by what Jesus just said. Because they know Jesus, they're the sick he's talking about. They're the ones he's talking about. But here's what we need to understand is this. People who are far from God know they're far from God. I did. Didn't you? I mean, I knew I was far from God. I knew I was way. I, I knew sitting right back there on about 10 rows from the back that, that, that last night of the revival when Joe Snead was speaking here, I knew I was far from God. And I needed to reconnect with him. And Matthew and his friends knew we're, yeah, we're far from God. And if they didn't know it in here, they knew it because everybody else told them how bad they were. Can anybody relate? And Jesus continues, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I, Jesus, have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If I could get Bubba. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that wasn't even offensive to Matthew and his friends. Why? Because they knew they were sinners. They knew. Right? They knew they were considered worse than sinners. And yet Jesus was not only kind to them, Jesus treated them like a normal human being, not as a less than. I believe Matthew, as he sat and thought about his life and his own encounter with Jesus, he was like, I don't have a choice but to include these people in the genealogy. I have to include them. This is people like me. I have to, I have to include sinners like myself, the broken, the, 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 the far from God, because they are the point of this whole story. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I'm here for the sinner. And get this. They watched, Matthew watched Jesus live that out for three years. Jesus said, I'm here for the sinner. I'm here for the broken. I'm here for the lost. I'm here for those that are far from God. And I think Matthew understood this more than any of the other writers of the gospel. The story of Christmas is the story of God drawing near to those at some point in their life had drawn away from God. The Christmas story is about God leaning in toward those that at some point walked away from God. The Christmas story is about God leaning in toward those that because maybe because of things they didn't do, they found themselves far from God. 
about God leaning in towards those that because of things they had no control over. At the hurt of it, they found themselves close to God. And I believe that Matthew felt the need to include these people in Jesus' genealogy because these people were the real reason Jesus came. Matthew understood this, that when Jesus came on the scene, he changed the rules to approaching God. The reason Matthew had drawn away from God and the real reason that a lot of people even here or watching online have drawn away from God is this, because they, their, their thought is this, I know where I'm at and then I, I cannot approach a holy God where I'm at in the shape I'm in, the life I'm living. I cannot approach God. And we thought, but why? Because we think it's based upon what we do, how good we are. If we get it all right, the only reason God's going to accept me is, is if I've done enough. And Matthew knew that if that was the means to approach God, that he himself didn't even have a leg to stand on because he knew he was not good enough. And let me tell you, I hate to burst your bubble, you are not good enough. I don't care if your testimony is, hey, I lived a sinless life, man. I gave my life to God at an early age and never really straight off the path. You are still not good enough. Matthew learned over the course of his three years following Jesus that the rules had changed. That now because of Jesus, because of Christmas, a sinner like him, a tax collector like him, a man that had been ostracized from the temple and religious gatherings, a man that was broken, a man, a person like him now could approach God, not on the basis of what he did, but on the basis of what God did for him. See, Matthew wanted us to know in his telling of the Christmas story that the sinners, the broken that he brought up in the genealogy of Jesus, they were the whole point. Because God didn't come for those that feel like they're righteous enough, that they've got it all together, that they're not broken, that they're good enough. He came for the broken, the sinners, those that felt like they could never on their best day be good enough. That on their best day they can't get it all together. Those that recognize how broken we are, we know this one. We need a gift. We need a gift from God. And on his birthday, Jesus came bearing gifts. The gift of righteousness, the gift of grace, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of acceptance, the gift of mercy, the gift of what God through his son has done for us. I think Matthew, when he's writing this genealogy and he's bringing up this, I think he kind of laughed to himself. I think every time he would get to one of these shady characters, one of the family trees that other people might not mention, Matthew thought, I've got to mention Tamar. I've got to bring her up. Because, yeah, her, her start was rocky, but man, what God did. I, I've got to bring up I, I've got to bring, a, bring, bring up Rahab the prostitute. I, I can't leave out Bathsheba. But I won't say her name. We'll just say Solomon. 
whose mother had been your, your eyes wide. Matthew's like, I cannot leave these people out of the genealogy because they're the whole reason there is a genealogy in the first place. You and I, guys, we are the point of the story. We are the point of the Christmas story. D.A. Carson said it like this, and Jill, if you'll get ready. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, some of y'all need to hear this, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. So he sent us a Savior. And with that, he says, oh, come, all you broken. Come, all you unfaithful, because you are the point of the story. Oh,